0: Please bow your heads one more time with me as we go to the Lord together in prayer to ask His blessing on the preaching of the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are ignorant and we are in darkness until You shine into our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We want to see Him. We need Your help. We need You to open our eyes. We've just heard that your word does not come back void without accomplishing all of your purposes for it. And we trust that even though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our Lord stands forever. So feed us on the bread of life now, we pray. Feed us on Jesus Christ, crucified. Buried, risen from the dead, and ascended to your right hand. Speak to us now, though your servants are listening. Speak your word to us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Ulrich Wilkins was a genuinely evangelical Christian professor of New Testament. And that put him in the serious minority when he was teaching at three liberal German universities in Marburg, Berlin, and Hamburg. When he wrote a six-volume theology of the New Testament near the end of his life, it was not even given the honor of being reviewed by his academic peers. They didn't even acknowledge it publicly because they were hostile to his evangelical Christian theology and experience. He believed in the inspired and errant word of God. He believed in regeneration. He believed in conversion. He believed in the atoning death and physical resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And none of his peers in those academic universities believed in those things or respected him. In fact, they held him in derision for his work. In an interview with a German magazine, Ulrich Wilkins related his own conversion experience. He said, growing up, there was no praying in our house. My father was a staff doctor in the military and 100% convinced there is no God. And so I also believed in nothing. In January 1945, so shortly before World War II ended, I was drafted as a 16-year-old We received six weeks of training and then we were thrown into the war near Munich. We were supposed to stop the American 6th Armored Division with small arms and grenade launchers. I was dug in 100 yards in advance of the front. I heard the rumble of 200 advancing tanks. I will never forget that terrifying sound. I was in fear of death. A schoolgirl friend had given me a pocket New Testament. I pulled it out and read... In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, John 16. I did not only read these lines. I heard them. You ask me how someone hears the voice of God today? These words for me were not just something I read out of a tattered Bible. It was God addressing me. This voice of Jesus Christ... It stuck with me my whole life. Not everyone today, however, believes that God in Jesus addresses us personally in the scriptures. Ulrich Wilkins's conversion, followed by his professional rejection at the theological universities where he taught, illustrates what Jesus has always done among people he has done it ever since our text for this morning John 7 37 to 52 if you would turn there with me in your Bible John 7 37 to 52 and he is doing this still among people today Jesus invites the thirsty he divides popular opinion and he infuriates the The elites. Our first point is the longest by far, so do not get discouraged. First, Jesus invites the thirsty in John 7 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus invites the thirsty. He invites the thirsty. The whole reason Jesus delayed coming to this festival in the first place is that the Jews already wanted to kill him for healing the paralytic at the Pool of Siloam on the Sabbath in chapter 5. Remember that? So once Jesus finally gets to the festival and starts teaching, the Jewish leaders take offense at his independent wisdom a couple days prior. To our passage. Here he is now teaching in the temple without a rabbinical degree from one of the Pharisees' accredited schools. And they think, where is he getting this stuff? Who does this guy think he is? Because none of us signed his diploma. The crowd has just accused Jesus of having a demon of paranoia in chapter 6, verse 20. They gaslit him, remember? They tell, who's trying to kill you? Nobody's trying to kill you, even though they know their Jewish leaders are trying to kill him. And the temple police are now trying to arrest him on the Pharisees' behalf in chapter 7, verse 32. Not exactly a hometown welcome. Not exactly, hey, there's a conference speaker in town, buy your tickets, come to the teaching. This is not a good vibe. This is not a good public buzz about Jesus. Jerusalem does not like him. He's not their kind of rabbi and they let him know it. In no uncertain terms. And yet, on the great last day of the feast, as everyone is packing it in to go back home, Jesus invites them, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And that is not what we might have expected. In fact, it reminds you of all those times in Isaiah or the other prophets when God is accusing his people of infidelity to the covenant, only to almost immediately, abruptly invite them to repent and promise his future mercy to them in the very next breath. It reminds you of the logic of Isaiah 55, 7 and 9. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. That's repentance right there. You want a biblical definition of repentance? Isaiah 55, Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, that's repentance. Turning away from yourself and from your sin. And let him return to the Lord. That's repentance. Turning from and turning to. It's one motion. When you're turning from your sin, you ought to be turning toward not just yourself or some false religion but towards Jesus, towards God and Christ. That he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Why? Why do you turn? Why does he want the wicked to turn from their way? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You think because I'm angry at you at... Because of your sin, you can't come to me and turn to me for forgiveness. You're wrong. My ways are not your ways. I can be angry at you and still invite you to repent towards me and get mercy from me as the only one who can give it to you. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than yours. God's patient mercy in Christ Two sinners like us is higher than our thoughts about Him. He's better than you think He is. He's more merciful, more patient, more kind, more forgiving, more compassionate, more gracious. One of the thoughts we have to forsake is that God is unwilling to forgive and save sinners like you and me. You forsake that thought, forsake the thought, I am too wicked to repent. I am too wicked for God to forgive. Forsake that. And Jesus models this higher mercy and logic for sinners right here. He is so patient. They have been rejecting him this whole time. And what does he do? Whoever thirsts, come to me. He just keeps inviting sinners. People who have sinned against Him, to approach Him, to draw near to Him, to move towards Him, not away from Him, because He wants to satisfy the thirst of their souls. He pursues you, we just sang, to forgive you. Rest in Him. Even before the cross, He proves Peter right, right here. When He was reviled... For not meeting their expectations in Jerusalem, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Friend, sinner, th- this, this is the real Jesus. Does he confront and confound people who are self-righteous and overconfident like the Pharisees? You better believe he does. And if that's you, he's not going to pull any punches. But does he also offer himself to anyone who will seek Him to satisfy the thirst of their souls. Yes. This is one reason among countless others why you should love and trust Jesus. Don't you want to know Him? Don't you want to know this Jesus? Don't you want to move towards Him? and Stop moving away from Him? You can today. Forsake your sins. Forsake your thoughts. Stop trying to run your own life. Stop thinking you know Jesus without reading the Bible. Forsake your thoughts of God as if he's too stubborn to forgive you. Think of God as he reveals himself here in Jesus. Jesus is what God is like. What's more, this patient mercy in response to angry opposition is for Peter an example for us Christians that we might follow in Jesus' steps. So Christian, how do you treat the non-Christians around you who misunderstand and misrepresent Jesus, thinking they know better than you do? How do you treat people who don't like you because you love Jesus and you call other people to love Jesus and to obey him? In all the clarity of Jesus' teaching, he is kind and he is patient. In all the power of his teaching, he is patient and persevering and holding out his satisfaction to sinners who still as yet do not like him. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. The whole issue here in John 7 is people are not judging or evaluating Jesus with the right judgment. When other people fail to do that with you or with Christ in you, the only way to remain patient and merciful with them is to entrust yourself, not to their judgment of you or Christ, but to God's judgment of you and them. And Jesus makes this great invitation to come and drink from him, not only patiently but at a very compelling time on the last and great day of the week-long feast of tabernacles. Tabernacles are tents. At this feast, everybody would live in a tent for a week to commemorate how Israel and God lived together in tents as they traveled together through the wilderness after the exodus. It was like a camping feast where they relived Israel's wilderness wanderings with God. During the Exodus. And over time, according to the traditions passed on by Jewish rabbis, every day for seven straight days, they would draw water from the pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed the paralytic, and they would march it over parade style to the temple and pour it out on the altar. That began to be associated with God providing water in the wilderness during the Exodus. And this was all happening right after the current year's harvest had come in. It was a fall festival. So it was a seasonal festival celebrating God's faithfulness to send rain for the crop that had just come in and expressing dependence on God to send rain for the upcoming year and its crop. So after seven days of watching these ceremonial waters being drawn out and then poured out, Jesus, on the eighth day where no water would be poured out, stands up in the middle of the temple and yells out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now can you imagine on that day You've been watching water being drawn and poured out all week in hopes of an eschatological outpouring of the blessing of God. And Jesus, this new on the scene healer, countercultural, uneducated rabbi, sensational miracle worker, stands up and says, That. That would be electric. You would look at your husband or wife. You would look at your friend and you'd be like, what did he just say? He is claiming to be nothing less than the fulfillment of everything this festival has been celebrating and anticipating all week. He himself is the one who will provide everything that water and rain symbolized, not physically, but for the soul. He's claiming to fulfill prophetic promises like Isaiah 43, 19. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers, plural, in the desert, but in your heart. Or Joel 3, 18. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah will flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. All of that was very public, very national, very municipal even. The 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 river's going to come out from under the temple in city center Jerusalem and here Jesus is saying, no no no, I'll do it one better. That river, those rivers are going to come straight out of your heart. Zechariah 14.8, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. It's never going to dry up, never going to freeze. And Isaiah 12.3, which would have been read during this week-long festival, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say on that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted. Jesus says, come to Him for that water. And He's saying He's the one speaking in Isaiah 55. 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. You get all that from me, Jesus says. And I will put it not just in your mouth, but in your heart. Of course, in an agricultural economy like in the Middle East, rain is everything because it causes everything to live and grow and prosper. Jesus says if your heart is thirsty like a parched Middle Eastern field, he's got something for you that's like water to dry ground in your soul. but you cannot get from mere religious liturgy like the Feast of Tabernacles or coming here to church. What you cannot get from traditional family values no matter how good a husband you try to be. What you cannot get from social and political conservatism. What you cannot get from elitist virtue signaling and moral posturing. What you cannot get from the products you buy or the experiences you try. What you cannot get from entertainment Attention, approval, sex, power, wealth, success, peer recognition, networking, ministry, even family and friends, Jesus can give you. But then again, maybe you don't thirst for what Jesus wants to give you. Recognize the conditional form of the sentence, if... If anyone thirsts. Maybe you don't sense any need or craving for anything beyond what this life can give you. House, car, job, money, success, family. Maybe you have no appetite for what Jesus offers. Okay? Maybe the invitation isn't for you. Maybe you need to Pay attention to what you really want and whether that's really what Jesus wants for you. But if you do thirst, if anyone thirsts, no matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done or how you've sinned or how deep in it you are, whatever your color or culture or country, if anyone thirsts, that thirst is the first sign that satisfaction is coming. He's given you an appetite for something this world cannot satisfy. And Jesus invites you, no strings attached. All the fitness he requires is that you feel your need of him. If anyone, if anyone thirsts, thirsts for what? Refreshment for your soul, spiritual health, life, liveliness, vitality, a living responsiveness to God and to the things of God in Scripture and in His Spirit and among His people. Salvation from the guilt and weight and sorrow of your sins, freedom from all of that, right standing with God, no longer fearing His judgment of hell, for the guilt and impurity of your sins, energy and brightness for the things of God, if you have an appetite for something that nothing in this world can satisfy, if you are tired of your sin and how it leaves you high and dry, if your soul is drooping, if your heart is dragging and wilting and sagging, if if you sense your soul to be dying on the vine and nothing you try or buy satisfies you, If that's you, dried out with the withering emptiness of your sins in your heart, then Jesus invites you to come to him and drink. He has water for your soul. He can satisfy that. He can heal that. He has a kind of spiritual liquid satisfaction that will make your soul say, Ah, that is so much better. You know how drinking some beverages actually makes you more thirsty? Sometimes my children drink stuff, and I'm like, man, you might as well drink syrup. How is that even good to you? How how do you swallow that? Ah, that's better. You know how sometimes you go into a a restaurant, and they haven't calibrated the Coke machine in a while? And it's thick, and it's syrupy. It's like, ew, that's that's just too sweet. That's gross. Y'all need to do something about that. (laughs) You would rather drink water. (laughs) What Jesus offers your soul is not like that. It's not syrupy like Coke or Mountain Dew. It's not saccharine or gritty like I like to drink my sweet tea. I like to kind of chew my sweet tea. I like to get my sweet tea kind of like stuck between my teeth. I love sweet tea, really sweet tea. It's not viscous like hot chocolate made with milk. You drink hot chocolate made with milk and you're like, okay, I'm going to need some water after that. No, this is clean and clear and light and refreshing like simple spring water on a really hot day and it really quenches, it really slakes, it really douses your heart, it extinguishes your thirst by moisturizing your soul. That's what you need. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You have to believe in Jesus, whoever believes in me, not whoever believes in his own righteousness, not whoever believes in whatever he wants to believe, not whoever believes in the power of faith as faith or whatever faith is in, whoever believes in me, that I'm the son of God, that I'm the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, that I've come to die, to shed my blood for your sins, to Rise again for your righteousness and to unite you with my resurrection power and to pour out my spirit into you. If you believe that I am that, then out of his heart. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? Out of his heart? Surely that is a textual corruption. Out of his heart. Isn't that a typo? Don't you mean in your heart or into your heart? Or at least onto your heart? Or in, with, by, and under your heart? No. From out of His heart. If you trust in Jesus... Anyone who takes Jesus at his word, that he is God's sinless sacrifice to take the penalty for your sins. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you believe that about Jesus, then Jesus will make it so that you will have the spiritual equivalent of a natural spring bubbling up to produce multiple flowing rivers from out of your heart. There will be a real fountain of life in your soul that creates a river flowing from the inside out. Now, in the ancient Near East, to have a natural spring or well on your private property, that made you catnip. (laughs) You you would have been the most popular guy on the block, right? You were the guy to know if you had a natural spring on your property. It made you energy independent. (laughs) To have a river flow through the middle of your field makes you someone other people need and want to know. And Jesus is saying that you will have the spiritual source of life and vitality and fruitfulness and prosperity not just sitting there stagnating in your heart but flowing like a river from out of your heart. Water, life, energy, nourishment, cleanliness, satisfaction, security, contentment, prosperity, self-replenishing abundance right from out of your heart. Man, does that sound good? You want that? You should. You should want that. This is what an ecclesial reading of Song of Solomon 4:15 yields. A garden locked is my sister, my bride, the church. A garden fountain a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Church, that should be us. That should be you individually. The fountain will flow from the bride, the church. So imagine that sinner. Instead of the shriveling, wilting, withering dryness that fills your soul, Instead of the soul's equivalent of a sore throat. You know, my, my three-year-old had a sore throat early last week. Providential. Praise God. Liam had a sore throat. And, and he would make it worse by crying and then yelling about it. <laughs> and you come to think of it, that's a great picture of what we do. What a sinner does with the soreness of his heart, you're yelling about it, you're complaining about it, you're angry about it, you're not going to the right person or thing about it, you're trying to do the wrong thing about the soreness of your heart, and it's making it worse, not better. You've got to come to Jesus for that. instead of not wanting to swallow anything for fear of the pain rivers flowing with life-giving water coming straight up out of literally your belly that's the word your belly not heart heart is a nice kind of euphemism but belly is the image that Jesus uses and belly is the right image i mean when you get amped up for something you're really excited about where you feel it in your belly <laughs> right you get excited In your belly. When you get anxious, you feel it in your belly. When you get nervous, you get a pit in your stomach. When you're guilty and afraid, that's where you feel it. And from right there, from the very bottom of where you feel everything most deeply, rivers of living water springing right up from the deepest, innermost center of all of your affections. And it's a self-sufficient source of satisfaction right up out of your inmost heart and soul. That can be you. Jesus is offering you that right now. It's free for the asking. What are you waiting for? You should ask him for it. This is for you. If you're hearing this sermon, this is your big sign. You want a sign from God? You're here now. And Jesus is inviting you. You thirsty? Come to me and drink. Come to me. Take him up on it. What do you have to lose but your thirst, your emptiness, your withering guilt and shame? Let Jesus end all of that with the water of his spirit. Now, if that river is coming up from out of your heart, then it raises an interesting question. Where's that river going? It's satisfying you, but then what? Then it becomes a source of blessing and refreshment and prosperity and satisfaction in life and energy to other people around you. You can't keep that in. Springs bubble over. Rivers flow. They're not stagnant. They're not some stagnant cesspool that just kind of sits there. It flows. It's living water. And it goes other places to other people. You, believer in Jesus, become a carrier and distributor of spiritual water to others. You yourself become the water cooler that everybody else can gather around to talk about the things of God and the Spirit and to hear you talk about them and to hear you bubble up and overflow with your joy and peace and love and contentedness in Christ. What he's talking about is a personal Holy Spirit of the living God, the third person of the Trinity, coming up to take personal, permanent Powerful residence in your heart to irrigate your soul from the inside out so that other people can be watered by what Jesus is doing in your soul. That, that is the impetus for your evangelism, Christian. What is the Spirit doing in your soul? What it's doing should be bubbling up over into your conversations with other people and in how you model the Christian life for them. And Jesus offers us this, invites us to this great fountain authoritatively. Ever wonder why it says that the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified? Why is that? Why did Jesus have to be glorified, crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and ascended to God's right hand in his glorified body? Why did all that have to happen before he poured out the Spirit in greater measure on his church at Pentecost? When God created Adam, God put the Holy Spirit in him. He breathed into him the breath of life. And that wasn't just physical life. That wasn't just oxygen. That was the spirit of the living God. God filled Adam with the spirit of God, the the third person of the Trinity, living inside Adam and Eve's hearts. As there were four rivers flowing out of Eden, so there was a great river of God's spirit flowing out of Adam's heart. And when Adam sinned, he alienated and grieved that indwelling personal spirit of God because God's spirit is the Holy Spirit. Sin offends holiness. And so Adam lost the indwelling of God's spirit. Now imagine that. Imagine that all you ever knew in your created existence was the perfect human experience of all satisfying heart-to-heart fellowship with the living God who created you. And then... You sin, your sin grieves the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit leaves you. The tragedy of the fall is not just that God kicked Adam out of a well-watered, fertile paradise to scratch out a living on a dry, cursed planet. The tragedy is not simply that Adam had to leave the Garden of Four Rivers. The tragedy is that the Spirit left Adam's heart high and dry because the Holy Spirit was grieved by Adam's unholy spirit. And when the Spirit left Adam, the whole human race suffered that loss with Adam because Adam represented us with his sin and rebellion against God. And here in John 7, Jesus is saying nothing less than that he will do what it takes to give you back the Spirit of the God who created you that Adam lost on your behalf. And how's Jesus going to do that? At the cross... Jesus will suffer the abandonment of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The second Adam, Jesus, would suffer on the cross the same punishment that the first Adam suffered. The withdrawal of God's presence to bless him. Replaced with the presence of God's righteous indignation, God's moral outrage as judicial punishment for all the sins we committed that forfeited God's Spirit in us. Jesus was about to suffer that in order to restore the presence of the Spirit in us that we lost in Adam. What our sin forfeited... Jesus would restore. What the feast celebrated, Jesus would fulfill. What the prophets promised, Jesus would deliver. And if you have the Spirit of God bubbling up in your heart right now, responding to these things with joy and praise, it's a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus has given us in John seven thirty-eight: Rivers of living water. In your heart. this he said of the Spirit, which those who believed in him were about to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He had to complete all of the work that God gave him to do. Jesus first had to complete his total obedience to God as the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed, Jesus had to prevail. Jesus had to render perfect, personal obedience to all God's commands from the law, then Jesus had to suffer God's curse for all our disobedience to God's law, and Jesus had to obey and suffer like this as our representative, just as Adam disobeyed as our representative. God then had to receive that obedience both from Jesus' doing and his dying, and Jesus had to be glorified for his obedience as Adam would have been glorified if he had been, if he had obeyed on our behalf. In order to restore us, to restore to us the spirit which Adam lost. So Jesus doesn't just get us back to where Adam left us. Jesus gets us to where Adam could have gotten us if he had obeyed. And that's why Jesus is called the second Adam. He's a better Adam. He did what Adam failed to do, and he gets us to that glorified spirit and dwelt state that Adam lost. So then how do you respond to Jesus' invitation? Well, you approach him personally in prayer and in the Bible. You listen to him in order to take him at his word, to take him up on his offer, to trust him that he can give you what he is promising you. You ask him when you're reading the Bible, will you help me by your spirit understand what I'm reading? Will you give me light to see this text in the light of Jesus so that I can understand what you're revealing to me? Because my heart is dark. And this isn't just about being smart. It's about being spirit-filled and taught by the Spirit who breathed out these words in the first place. Only He can teach you this stuff. You present yourself to Him in prayer as someone who wants and needs to benefit from Jesus. You come to Jesus not to unleash your criticisms but to satisfy your cravings. So if your heart is thirsty and dry and empty and sore and cracked, dehydrated, you bring that dissatisfaction of soul to him, you come to him. You say, Jesus, this is how I am. This is how I feel. This is what my sin has done to my heart. And I'm tired of it. I'm dry. And nothing in this world satisfies me. Will you satisfy? Will you make this better? Ask him to restore to you the spirit of God that you have been grieving and alienating by your sin. Sinner, why doesn't your sin satisfy you? Why does money and work and pornography and alcohol and the party scene and sexual immorality and the unleashing of all your anger, why does it all leave you so hollow inside? It's because you were not created by a holy God to enjoy sin. That's why. You were created as a living temple of the living Holy Spirit. And your sin doesn't satisfy you because that's not what you were created to enjoy. You were created to enjoy holiness. You were created in God's image, not in Satan's image. God's Holy Spirit does not feel at home in a heart that loves to wallow in sin's mud. The Holy Spirit is a clean spirit. But if you trust Jesus' promise, Jesus is going to cleanse your heart by the blood he shed for you. He will cleanse your conscience. He will wash you as white as snow. He will send his spirit to live in your heart, to satisfy you on his word, his truth, his love, his mercy, his compassion for you. His ability to give you a reconciled relationship to God. And he will walk you straight to God the Father and Jesus will introduce you to God as his brother. And God will adopt you. Of course, not everybody believes this stuff. Verse 40 to 44, Jesus has always divided public opinion, and he does so still today. Follow along in verses 40 to 44 of chapter 7. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, this is the Christ to come from Galilee. Hasn't the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Jesus divides popular opinion, both then and now. So the crowd hears Jesus speaking this jaw-dropping knowledge. I'm the point of this whole eight-day feast. I'm the one who can make rivers of water well up in your heart to eternal life. I'm the one who can send you the Spirit to quench your thirst. The crowd recognizes what Jesus claims to be. That's what creates this buzz, but popular opinion is divided about him. Some start saying this guy's a prophet Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18. Others say he's the Messiah, but not like our church would use that word. They mean a Messiah like the crowds wanted to crown king in John 6 after Jesus multiplied bread and fish. Hey, we got a rainmaker here. I think this guy could be the one to free us from the Romans. This guy can take Rome back for Jesus. Let's do it. He can restore Judaism to greatness again. Let's crown him king. Others have their doubts. Surely the Christ isn't coming from the first century equivalent of rural Mississippi or the Appalachians or backwoods Kentucky. Surely the Messiah isn't going to have a southern accent. Surely he's not going to come from Hicktown, Galilee, with a country accent that's going to offend cosmopolitan elites. A Messiah from corn country? Man, how's that going to play in New York? You've got to be kidding me. Besides, don't we know from 2 Samuel 7, Micah 5, 1, that the Messiah is going to arrive as David's son in David's city, Bethlehem? At least that backstory has the dignity of royal blood going for it. So a division came about in the crowds on account of him. Popular opinion about Jesus is still divided today, along many of the same lines. Jesus was a prophet, just like many godly men, as Muslims believe. He was the most incredibly God-conscious human that ever existed, according to Protestant liberal thought, a good man, but not divine, superbly human, but only human. That's what a lot of the churches over here on Holy Hill and Central Elgin believe. Others think he was a false teacher, a deceiver, the first century equivalent of a smarmy TV preacher doing sleight-of-hand tricks for a power trip. Others think he's a savior of some sort, but mainly their kind of savior, from this worldly problems or politics, but not from their own sins. And still others vilify him for impersonating God. And look here at what Jesus offers and look at the popular human response. Jesus offers unparalleled spiritual fulfillment, yet of all the responses recorded here, no one seems to take Jesus up on his offer. They just gossip about him. Here Jesus stands in the middle of the temple, invites anyone who thirsts to come to him, and what happens? The crowd just turns to each other and bickers it away. And many want to string him up as a menace to society. Friend, don't let that be you. Now as then, lots of people want to neutralize Jesus, but his tomb is still empty. No one has produced his body. Jesus is beyond our control, and that is what infuriates the world's elites. Which leads us to our last point. Jesus infuriates the elites. John seven forty-five to 52. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, the bigwigs, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? Where is our prisoner? Why didn't you cuff him? That's what we told you to do. That's why you went out there. You're coming back empty-handed. And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities... Verse 45, temple police return to the chief priests and Pharisees, those who are in, in control and the self-appointed custodians of Israel's religious and moral culture. These elite priests and Pharisees were the ones who had sent the temple police to arrest Jesus. In verse 32, when they heard the crowd wondering if the Messiah will be able to do more signs than this Jesus fellow. So the priests and the Pharisees are expecting the temple guards to have Jesus in handcuffs. Verse 45, they're sorely disappointed. Why didn't you bring him? Where's the man, and the guard's answer is classic. No one ever spoke like this man. <laughs> you, you go try to arrest him. <laughs> There's that word for Jesus again. This man, this guy, this chap, this bloke. Jesus is absolutely vexing to people. No one knows what to make of him. Even people who are supposed to arrest Jesus get there. He talks to them, and they lose their nerve. And so they got to go back to their bosses and be like, "Oh, will see what happened was. There's a power, there's an authority to Jesus that humans find troubling. We have a hard time living with him. We can't seem to get rid of him, so people punt like the temple police. The police, supposed to arrest Jesus, don't exactly profess faith in him, but they don't arrest him either. They just come back empty-handed. We're not... I don't know. I don't have a good answer for why we don't have him. So they're agnostic. <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't arrest him. I can't reply to him. I don't, I'm, I don't know what to make of him. So the leaders ask asking, verse 47, you haven't been duped by this guy too, have you? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? Look to your leaders. What about the elites? What do the elites think about him? Hey, police, hey, look at me. Look at me, policemen. You think any of us are believing in this Jesus? We're your leaders. Do what you're told. Follow our example. We're the ones who know best. Who knows the Bible best around here? Of course, oh yeah, that's us. And do we believe in him? Right. Jesus' best and brightest are all in lockstep against this man. It's unanimous among us. Jesus is a fraud, an imposter, a false teacher, a deceiver, a lawbreaker. And also he's kind of a perceived threat to our moral power and academic authority and monopoly on how to interpret and apply the Bible. And he's claiming to be God when he's not God. So there's no controversy here at all as far as the leaders are concerned. So there should be no controversy among the temple police who report to them. And if the crowds that the police are intimidated by, well, this crowd who does not know the law is accursed. That's about as elitist as it gets. But for John the Evangelist, it's not only elitist, it is ironic, kind of deliciously ironic. John has been relating this incident as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is claiming to be and do all that the Feast of Tabernacles represented in the law, and anticipated. So, for the leaders to remain unbelieving would mean that they are the ones who don't know either the law that stipulated their feast or the prophets who applied that feast to the Messianic age. That's John the Evangelist's perspective. They're calling the crowds ignorant, but who's really ignorant of the law? Who's really ignorant of how that law and the Feast of Tabernacles is getting fulfilled? The very people who are accusing other people of being ignorant. They're the ones who are ignorant. Joke's on them from John's perspective. So when they say this crowd who does not know the law is accursed, John the evangelist means you as a reader to see the irony there. Who is it that truly doesn't know the law? It's the leaders themselves who are accusing everybody else of not knowing the law. So who is it that's really condemned? Joke's on them. Today's cosmopolitan and academic elites think common Christians are stupid for trusting in Jesus and Christ-centered reading of the Bible as God's inerrant word. And many of those elites curse us for espousing and proclaiming a Christian worldview that trusts in the Bible as God's word and Jesus as God's son and the savior of all who will trust in them and him for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, their reasons, today's elite's reasons, are different than the first century elite's reasons. Today's elites think Christians are stupid, not for our ignorance of the Bible, but for our ignorance of how they think naturalistic science has supposedly disproved The biblical worldview, or how German higher criticism of the Bible has supposedly undermined the Bible's reliability as God-breathed inerrant scripture. They think we're the ones who have been deceived by a traditional biblical worldview and theology. Since we don't think what they think about the Bible... Therefore, we believe in Jesus as God's Son and our Savior when, from their perspective, we should not. But here in John 7, John the evangelist thinks there's a funny irony to that kind of elitist disdain of Christians who trust in Jesus and the Bible is God's Word. Specifically, elitist disdain only condemns the elite's themselves, smarter than Jesus, is not a compliment. The elites, both then and now, are, from a biblical perspective and a theological perspective, the butt of their own joke. And they don't realize it. Christian, Elite, academic dismissal of the Bible's reliability is not something for you to be intimidated by. It is something for you to disdain and laugh at and probably pray for them. But if they're not careful, Proverbs 1, 26 to 28 is going to be talking about them. Where wisdom says, because you did not listen to me, I will laugh at your calamity. In fact, verse 51, contrary to their own assumptions, there is a leader, a Pharisee, who does in fact appear to believe in Jesus, or at least he's starting to, one of their own, Nicodemus. Since the Pharisees have just mentioned the law, Nicodemus suggests some sage advice. Our law doesn't judge a man without first going and hearing and learning of what he does, right? Ah, now there's a little irony. Who doesn't know the law now? The leaders themselves don't know the ceremonial law since they don't know the significance of the feast that they've been celebrating. Now they don't know the civil law or the moral law because they're ready to condemn Jesus without a fair trial against their own law. And this testimony about the leader's ignorance of the law is coming against them from one of their own, Nicodemus. Maybe the leaders are not in lockstep against Jesus after all. So what's an embarrassed elite to do when he's been shown up by one of his peers? All he can do, resort to an ad hominem argument. Just a personal attack. Well, you're not from Galilee too, are you? You're going to start talking like a hick? It's like they can think of no other reason for anyone to support Jesus than treating him like a local claim to fame. Or more likely, Nicodemus must be a backwoods hick. Because obviously, no urbane, cosmopolitan intellectual from Jerusalem would be so foolish as to think that this carpenter from out near Capernaum, who had never been to one of their schools, could actually be the Messiah. Then to end the whole scene by relishing the irony, John records the elites telling Nicodemus, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They're not telling him to go out into the highways and byways and make sure that nobody's arising from there today or in their day. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, hey, Nick, whose side are you on here? Why don't you go back and have a quiet time in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? Why don't you see that the Bible never says that there's ever going to be a prophet that's coming out of Galilee? How did you pass your oral exams, Nicodemus, without knowing that? We're the experts. You're supposed to be one of us. Go back to your cubicle and rediscover how right we are. You're the one who doesn't know the law, Nicodemus. You go read your Bible again, you'll find that no prophetic pedigree has ever run through Galilee. What the elites do not take into account, of course, and what John is laughing at behind the scenes, is that Jesus was not actually born in Nazareth of Galilee. He was born, in fact, in Bethlehem of Judea. So for starters, they don't know Jesus as well as they think they do, yet they also don't know their own Bibles as well as they think they do. Your cross-reference in your margin might note 2 Kings 14.25 and Joshua 19.23, which to your minds may look like really boring academic Old Testament cross-references that nobody cares about but people who put cross-references in Bibles. But if you were to look them up and you were to meditate on them, you would be quite edified. In 2 Kings 14.25, we learn that Jonah... Was from the city of gath and in Joshua nineteen twenty-three, we note that gath was in fact in Zebulun. And if you compare your Old Testament Bible map with your New Testament Bible map, Zebulun is Galilee. Turns out there was at least one prophet from Galilee, Jonah from gath of Zebulun, Galilee. But maybe the elites aren't just referring to any prophet, but to the prophet, the one like Moses from Deuteronomy 18. And if that's the case, then Deuteronomy 18 never specified a location for that prophet. But Isaiah did. As Paul Duke noted, Isaiah 9.1, In the former time, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Jesus wasn't born there, but he did grow up there, according to Matthew 3. Matthew 4 quotes Isaiah 9 as fulfilled in Jesus' withdrawal to Galilee. So these elites are totally dismissive. Just get this straight. They are totally dismissive of any popular notion of trusting in Jesus based on their own knowledge of the Bible and of Jesus. And yet it is precisely their own knowledge of Jesus and the Bible that is deficient when they think that's their strong suit. That's what they're trusting in. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. John the Evangelist is telling you, don't let elitist, academic unbelief stop you from simply taking Jesus at his word in Scripture. You're right. They're wrong. A number of theologians rightly see that what matters to John the Evangelist and Jesus himself is not his geographic backstory, but his heavenly origin. Jesus really is from heaven, even if the elites are confused about where on earth he was born or what the Old Testament taught us to expect from Him. So the elites here are supremely confident in their judgment about Jesus because of their knowledge of Scripture, and they are completely wrong. This is starting to become a theme, isn't it? You've been here the last couple of weeks. I'm starting to sound like a broken record. They think the Old Testament itself makes it impossible for this Jesus to be the Christ. For them, Scripture itself rules out Jesus as a candidate for the Messiah and how wrong they were again and again and again. Look at how confident you can be about your opinion of Jesus. Look at how close you can be to his person, how much of a superiority complex you can have academically and intellectually. Look at how elitist you can be and be totally wrong about Jesus and the Bible you think you know and about heaven, and about hell, and about which fate awaits you based on what you think about Jesus, and whether you trust him or not. There are a number of questions asked in the paragraph that assume that the person asking is already correct. It doesn't come through in the English translations, but all of these questions assume an answer. Surely the Messiah isn't coming from Galilee, is he? No, of course not. Surely you haven't been led astray too, have you? No, couldn't be. None of the other rulers have believed in them, have they? No, of course not. You're not from Galilee too, are you? Why don't you distance yourself? Those are really rhetorical questions. The one asking thinks he already knows the answer and is grilling someone else for not knowing the answer. But the point is that the people asking the questions are wrong to assume that they're right about the issue in question. (laughs) John is laughing at all of them. (laughs) You think you know so much that you can ask a rhetorical question of somebody else about your knowledge of Jesus? Keep reading the gospel of John and see what happens. In fact, the only person who's right to ask his question like this is the one who's actually starting to believe in Jesus, Nicodemus himself. Doesn't our law refuse to judge a man until it hears from him first and knows what he did? Yes, 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 I think I'm right, and I am. The modern mind assumes its only rationale that Jesus cannot be the Christ, the Son of God, King of God's kingdom, Savior of the world. Atonement for our sins. It's only rational. Can't be. That couldn't be true. Could it? Why don't you take him up on on his invitation and find out for yourself? Maybe that's you. Maybe you know yourself to be empty, thirsty, sinful, dirty at heart deserving of God's condemnation because of your sin. If that's you, don't wait. Jesus' offer is for you, and you are wise to take him up on it. Listen to this from Charles Spurgeon as we close. When the housewife looks at the linen for the laundry, she doesn't say, this garment is too dirty to be washed. No, no. As she looks over the household linen, if one piece is worse than the rest, she is quite sure that it is fit to go. And she puts it without question into the bag. Oh, my sinful friend, your sinfulness is the reason you should go to Christ for cleansing. Do you ever know a man stop away from dinner because he was hungry? Did you ever say, I must not drink because I am thirsty? Do men say, when I am not quite so thirsty, then I will drink? When I am not quite so faint, then I will eat? Does any sick man say, I am so ill that I shall not send for a doctor till I'm better? We do not talk like that about other matters. Then why do we talk about our souls like that? Jesus Christ asks nothing of us except that we will receive him, and he presents himself to us freely. So, Who's thirsty for some living water? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are so good and patient and wise and compelling and compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, just like your father. you have offered to us streams, rivers of living water that would flow right out of our heart. So compel everyone here to take you up on that offer. Compel them, convince them, persuade them that you mean it and that you will do it that you are trustworthy and wise, make these words from Scripture, words to them, words to us. Make them jump off the page and into our hearts that you are addressing us, that this is really the voice of Jesus addressing us, addressing me, May we sense ourselves, may we know ourselves to be filled with these streams of living water that would cleanse and change us and satisfy us forever. For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen.